Take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter 4 as we continue through this sermon series in the book of Proverbs entitled Worship and Wisdom, or Wisdom and Worship. Today I want to bring a message, Proverbs 4, 1 through 9, entitled, Keep Wisdom and It Will Keep You. Let's read that passage together. Solomon writes, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And wherever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. In, uh, in raising children, most of us spend a lot, a lot of our time trying to instill in them good uh, ethical teaching. I, I hope that we do. And that's not unlike the people of, of, of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find a very practical section of the law telling parents what they should be teaching their children. Hold your place in Proverbs chapter 4 and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and in way of understanding what's going on in this passage. Remember, we're looking at the speeches of the father to the son. Remember, Solomon has sons, so he's speaking to his sons and his grandsons by this time. But not just them. Solomon is speaking as the father of the nation of Israel. So he's speaking to the entire nation of Israel. But not just the nation of Israel. But he also, because of the work of Christ, is speaking to the new Israel. He's speaking to us, his people, in the new covenant. He's telling us how to build our lives on the precepts and principles of God's word. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's a very familiar uh, passage. But I just want to look at it with you quickly here. Because it's going to be intimately important. It's going to be very necessary that we understand what's going on. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, Moses says, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Remember Proverbs 1 verse 8 or verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. That you might do what I'm commanding you to do in the land to which you are going to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. He's talking about great-great-grandchildren in this passage. That's common in the Hebrew. It, when they instruct their children, they look generationally throughout their family. Now I want to say something very important in this introduction. What you're teaching your children is what they will teach your grandchildren and in turn your great-grandchildren. Yeah, solemn hush falls across the crowd. You're affecting three and four generations of family by the way you live and what you teach and the example you set. When the Old Testament, we need to be careful that we don't overlook this. When the Old Testament says the sins of the father 
are passed down from one generation to the next. That's not biological DNA sin necessarily, only. But that's also what example you're setting for them. They will live out that example. Unless something radically happens in a family, when a family, uh, when a family does not honor and follow the Word of God, the next generation will, unless something radical happens, we're going to talk about something radical that can change this, but all things staying the same, Whatever you're doing right now with your children will be what they do with their children, will be what those children do with their children. It's why when we look at poverty, just one example, when we look at poverty, it is a generational event. When we look at education, it's a generational event. What do I mean? Unless someone breaks the cycle of the family line, it will continue the direction it's going. If it's in poverty, the, same, the next generation will do the same things that their family did to live in poverty, which will set in a role for their children to live in poverty. If a family doesn't value education, has no place for learning to read, their children won't learn to read, which means their grandchildren won't learn to read, it's, it's, it continues, it passes down from one generation to the next. So what you're doing right now impacts generations of people. And the Bible attests to that over and over and over again. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping... How are we going to fear the Lord our God? We're going to obey His statutes, His commands, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now practically, how is this applied in the home? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You're, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice that the law is heart-focused. Parents, if all you do is lecture to your children, restrain your children, and abuse your children, they will not grow up to love you and they may not grow up to love God and His Word, especially if you use it as a Christianism, a moralism, and say, well, you know, you lose your temper and you scream at them. You, you scream at them that they're failures, they're always going to be failures, and that, that you know, they're, they're breaking God's will for their life. I hear this kind of thing. And so they begin to associate guilt from failing their parents with the Bible, and then they, they turn their back as they get older on the Scriptures. They turn their back on the Word of the Lord. They don't want to do what their dad did. They don't follow his example. Uh, uh, or they follow his example in his rejection of God. They reject God. So, we look at this passage and it's very practical. Love the Lord your God. It's very heart-focused. God is concerned that you not just do the right things, but you do it from a right heart. And so, the Hebrew family was focused around the commands of God, that they applied them to their heart and they were to apply them to their children's heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. 
You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. That applies to us, church. If Christianity is something you do on Sunday and not all week, don't be surprised when you're 18, 19, 20, 25, and 28-year-old. Don't do Christianity. It's always been true, but never more so. Never more so. In this generation, children will not fake it. This generation that we're raising up right now, the people that are between birth and 18, they recognize phony, and they don't want to be that. They will reject it. So if you think dressing up nice, coming here, sitting on Sunday, and then living like the world all week impacts your children, you're right, it does. The wrong way. They are going to reject your faith, and they will walk away. They will not follow it. Why? Because God's not interested in right action as much as He is right hearts, which lead to right action. Right actions grow out of right hearts, not the other way around. And so, in the, in the very base of the law is something that God is witnessing, He is calling, He is declaring that you are to love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. What is that? All of your life. Love me with all of that. And then teach your children to do that by teaching them my commands. Now we look at Proverbs chapter 4 and we get to the ethical teaching of the families of Israel. It didn't just stay on the theoretical, but it became very practical. The teachings were very practical. I've been trying to be practical in this message series. Let me be practical. Fathers and mothers, base your instruction to your children off of the Word of God. Discipline your children when they break the Word of God and, and, and bring them before the Lord in that discipline. How? how? <clears throat> now, I don't do this perfectly. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. I don't do this perfectly, but an older man in the faith, Bob St. John, I went to him when I had my first child because I was panicked. I've told you that. When, I, when they handed Hannah Grace to me in the hospital, bundled up all sweet and nice, and said, you're ready to go home. I was thinking, there's no instruction book for how to handle this, right? There's, I'm not ready for this. How about you keep her for a little longer, and I'll get trained up, read a book, you know? It doesn't work that way. So I brought her home. As soon as I got an opportunity to get away from the family, I headed to Bob St. John's office like a refuge to me. I sat down, wringing my hands, said, Bob, I, I don't know how to parent. I don't know, I don't know how to to, to raise children. You've done it. How do I do it? He's, and he sat me down. He's very practical. I don't want to be that way with you this morning. What we see Solomon doing here is he is applying Deuteronomy 6 practically in the home. All of his teaching, which by the way, it's his teaching. Notice in the scripture that it's his teaching. He's not talking about the proper law, but he's talking about the ethical teaching of the home based on the proper law. That's what the son's being told to value and treasure and hold on to throughout his life. is his father's instruction. Why should a... Here's the question, parents, for me and for you. Why should my children hold on to what I'm instructing them about right now for the rest of their life? Or am I just annoyed with them and trying to get them out of my hair? Right? I'm fussing at them because they bother me. 
I'm mad at them because they interfered with my schedule. What am I disciplining them about? Irresponsibility or rebellion? My, my understanding of discipline is that it is reserved for rebellion. Yes, not irresponsibility. What do I mean by that? I say, this is just an example. This did not happen, okay? I'm just, I'm just using my children and my family because we're not perfect. And your family's perfect, so there's no analogies for you. If I tell Noah, get up from the table and go get the pasta bowl from the stove, bring it over, I want some more pasta. And he goes over, he gets it, he's doing his very best, and he drops that bowl. It shatters, pasta goes everywhere. That's not the time to spank him. He inconvenienced me. He didn't rebel against me. He was trying to obey me. If you discipline him at that point, don't be surprised when he rejects your discipline. The older he gets, the more he will turn from it. The more his heart will harden to it. Now, if I tell Noah, Noah, could you go get Daddy the pasta bowl? And he says, nope. No. Why? What are you doing? I'm just not going to do what you tell me to do. This is rebellion. To put it on the teenage level. When I say be home at 11 o'clock, it means be home at 11 o'clock. Now, unlike sometimes in my life, when I was in your shoes, teenager, you should not put your life at risk for 11 o'clock. Right? But why did I do that? Because it was, a, it, was not, it was not discipline being based on the Word of God. It was discipline being based on, like, my, I'm, I'm the parent and you're the child and I'm going you know, to show you who's the boss. That was the kind. So I drove really recklessly a lot of times. <clears throat> Sometimes it was, not my, it was honestly not my fault that we, I was about to be late. I can remember being detoured unexpectedly because of a wreck. And I drove like a madman because it, I, I left 10 minutes earlier than normal. But I was about to be late. And I was going to get grounded for two weeks. I wasn't going to be able to drive my car for two weeks. I should have had the freedom to call and say, hey, there's a detour. This, this is what's going on. But I didn't feel that freedom. Why? Because there was a lot, of abu- a lot of discipline that was being done not based on the Word and not based on the principles of God's Word. I wasn't rebelling. Rebellion brings discipline. I can tell you how, why I say that. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, say that the only way you can lose your sonship is through rebellion. Through rebellion. In other words, just because you were a biological child in the Hebrew family did not mean you would always be a child in that family. Now, this is the one everybody pulls out. You know, you're lucky. I've said it. You're lucky you don't live in the Old Testament days. They would stone you right now. Right? Because in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, it says that if a child lives in rebellion, if their lifestyle is to rebel against their father and their mother, and they just continue in this lifestyle, as they come of age and go into real life, if they're still in that mindset, the end is not good. They will be stoned. Why? Because they are rebellious. And rebellion is discipline worthy. Rebellion is something we should stop in our homes. Not irresponsibility. 
Not necessarily irresponsibility. In other words, here Solomon's talking about these very practical life instructions that he's been giving his child. We don't know how old his son is. We wade wade into the deeper into the letter. It's obvious that he's of age because there's a lot of sexual talk in this book and a lot of sexual warnings in this book. So I would say he's probably becoming a man. He's getting ready to leave his father's home. And, his, and Solomon is saying, as a good father should, remember what I've taught you based on God's Word and do not turn your back on it. If you do, death will come to you. If you don't, life shall crown your head. We'll see it today, okay? So is my parenting, this is the question I've had of myself, so I'm going to ask it of you because I'm tired of asking myself. Parents, can we say that about our discipline? When our 18, 19, 20-year-old gets ready to leave our house, can we say to them in the eyes, do what I've taught you to do? Based on the Word of the Lord. Continue in it. If not, I would say, we're not, I'm not being a good father. I'm not preparing them for life. I'm not getting them ready for the next stage. I'm not... Being a good grandfather, I'm not being a great great grandfather at that point. Okay, so basing our so the introduction is to say this is all in the context of basing our instruction on the commands of God, which command us to love God with all of our heart and to give everything we have to pursuing the commands of God, to pursuing relationship with God. So the the sentence of this sermon is the the, the thought of this sermon is this. Fathers and sons, we should follow the practical teachings based on the Word of God because in them we will find that our hearts are satisfied with Jesus. Our hearts are made to satisfy themselves in Jesus based on following and obeying His commands. So we look at this passage now. What does it say to us? The first two verses say, number one, godly teaching should be kept and followed. Hear, O sons. This is the common way to introduce a speech, an admonition. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. So he's instructing them, And they're gaining insight. If you pay attention to my instructions, you will gain insight. If you ignore my instructions, you will be blind. You will be darkened. You will not know where to go in life. But if you're attentive, if you learn, if you grow in knowledge of my instructions, you gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. We hear echoes here of Psalm 19. Turn with me to Psalm 19. This one of the famous passages that Solomon would have known from his father. His father, David, probably taught him this psalm. In the first six verses of the psalm, it bases on the general revelation of God. The fact there is a God is the creation all around us. But then in verse 7, a transition is made. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. Blameless. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules. Oh, we dread that word, don't we? 
the rules, the decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, as Ricky read to us. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So we see that this teaching in Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive to your, the, you, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Psalm 19. I give you the precepts of my teaching based on the precepts of God's Word. I'm training you. I'm teaching you to live out God's Word. Don't forsake my teaching. Don't turn away from my teaching. Why? Because in the teachings are the great rewards. Fathers, again, I'm speaking a lot to you today. I've been kind of talking to the children. Hadn't got to the moms. Your turn's coming. But fathers, this, this has just really struck me this week into repentance. How are we raising our children? What are we doing to affect their hearts towards the Lord? Is our home built on the foundation of God's precepts? Are the instructions I'm giving my children based on the instructions of God's Word? The heart of a child is easy to capture, and it's also easy to lose it. And the reality is we lose it often when we make ourselves the end-all, be-all. And we can only gain it by making Christ the end-all, be-all. If you want your children to follow your instruction all of their life, they have to be eternal instructions. Lived out practically. If they're only practical, if they're only managerial of your home that makes everything convenient for you, as they grow older, they will reject that. They will feel micromanaged and imposed on, and they will walk away from it. You ever wondered why 18-year-olds go to college and throw caution to the wind? Maybe they just saw everything we taught them as just making our life easier. Making us feel better. Keeping us from being embarrassed. So they say, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I want to live how I want to live. Again, remember, this is not... A hundred percent. Nothing in Proverbs is intended to be an absolute. If you do A, B will happen. You will get C. That's not the way it works. It's not a formula. But it's like I told a man this week that we were, when we were talking about this. Would you rather start off on the right foot with an opportunity to go the right direction? Or would you rather start off the wrong way with no opportunity to go the right direction? That's kind of how I see this. So godly teaching should be kept and followed. It should be kept and followed. It should be cherished. It should be treasured, we're going to see. It should be held in high esteem. It should be lifted up. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, we see that godly commands are learned as a child and should be, thro should be kept throughout life. What you learn as a child should be kept throughout your life, is Solomon's instruction. When I was a son with my father. Now, how old was that? He goes on to tell us, tender the only one in the sight of my mother. All right. That basically, interpretation of that is a three-year-old. How did I arrive at three? He's talking to a three-year-old. We know that because he would have been breastfed until he was three. All Near Eastern women, without exception almost, 
from all of the ancient writings, breastfed their children for three years. He was the only one in his mother's sight. That's an intimate way of saying he was at her breast. And so then he became his father's child. So we see this transition happening. The mother has caressed, nursed, cared for, directed him, and now he's three. I love the Hebrew world, don't you? It was so simple. Mothers, you're really heavy, intensive for three years, and then you become the supporter of dad. Dad takes the son at three and makes him a man. You know? That's, that, 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 that's the typical way a Hebrew home would have worked. And from three to about 12 to 14, he would have been a student of his father. Whether that, and that would have been in every way of life. Learning how to be a Christian, learning how to or a God follower, learning how to be a family man, learning how to be a professional. He would have took up his father's trade. He would have learned everything. He would have spent 24 hours a day some better part of it, with his father. So when Solomon's giving these instructions, he's saying to them, look, you were a tender child when we began to teach you these things. We began to teach you at young age to follow the commands of the Lord. And then the father picked up the instruction, and he taught me and said to me, these are the words of the father, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. I mean, that strikes at me as a father. Do you men feel the weight of this? That your children cherish what you teach them in their hearts. How does that happen? Only if what you're teaching them is eternal. Only if what you're teaching them is application of the gospel. They can't treasure they can't treasure in their hearts what's not a treasure. Let your heart hold fast to my words to keep my commandments and live. That's how we know these are gospel, practical living instructions based on the gospel because they bring life. Get wisdom. Purchase. That word get means to purchase, to buy. Get wisdom. Get insight. In other words, do everything you can do to get this. Do not forget and do not turn away from my words, from the words of my mouth. Obedience was the DNA of the son from his father. Obedience. I love this because when you have a family that is non-traditional, as we do, none of my children can say to their sibling, you're not one of us. Simply because they're not DNA, one of us. The Hebrew family was based on obedience. You were owned by your family while you were obedient. If you persisted in disobedience, you were no longer part of the family. DNA didn't determine your part in the family. Or where would they get a concept like this? And this is where we begin to weave the gospel in. We begin to see that the writer had in mind a great obedience. A great obedience. The type, the shadow... Of our obedience to God is our obedience to our parents. Now I get to talk to the children some. You're in your father's home. Listen, children. You're in your mother's care. And you will not obey them. And yet you want to talk about you love the Lord. How do you love the one you cannot see if you don't love the one that you see? How can you say you obey the one who you've never laid eyes on when you won't obey the Father 
and mother in your own home. A good indication of when a child has grasped the gospel with their heart is they begin to obey their father and mother. Not out of drudgery, not out of obligation, but just out of love. The light has come on. Love for your father, listen to me, love for your father in heaven is exemplified by your love for your father on earth. Now, homes are not all the same. Fathers are not all the same. Remember, this is a general application. But children, in this church, I know your fathers. I know them pretty well. Most of you, I would say, the majority of you, almost all of you, if you're not following your father, you're missing the opportunity to display love for God the Father. Keep godly commandments that you learn as a child throughout your entire life. Obey them. Treasure them. Keep them close to your heart. Don't turn away from them. Don't forget them. Because they are godly instruction that will gain, be great gain. So we have godly teaching should be kept and followed. Godly commands should be learned as a child and kept throughout your life. And now he turns up one more time to say godly wisdom is ultimately contained in the gospel. And it should be desired above life. Verses 6 through 9. Do not forsake her wisdom. And she shall keep you. That's the title of the sermon. Keep wisdom and it will keep you. Do not forsake wisdom and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. In this passage, wisdom is being personified as a wife or as a patron. What I mean by that is you're to keep them and they will keep you. This idea that the wisdom that you've been instilled to you from the gospel will guard your heart is the idea of a one who you've given everything to so that in the ancient world so that they can protect you against outsiders. A man might assign himself to the care of one greater than him so that he can be protected against his enemies. And that's what's happening here. The person is being employed, the son is being told, trust yourself to wisdom and wisdom will keep you like a poor man entrusts himself to a wealthy man so the wealthy man might protect him from outside attack. You do the same with this wisdom that I've laid into your life. Love her and she will guard you. So he says, first of all, don't forsake it. Then he goes up one step. It's like a stair step towards the gospel. Don't forsake what I teach you. Verse 6b, love what I teach you. Verse 8a, prize highly what I teach you. You see how he goes up and goes up. Don't forsake it. Not only don't forsake it, we might get by with that just by doing outward actions. Love it. Don't just love it. Love it more than life. Now, what can we speak of biblically like that? It can't be take the garbage out. It can't be wash the car on Fridays. It can't be be home at 11 o'clock. What is it that the parent is teaching this child that they are not to forsake, that they are to love, and that they are to love more than life itself? What, what one thing can he be teaching above everything? 
The gospel. You got it. The gospel. In the end, if you teach them to take the garbage out, you teach them to be respectful with their, uh, with their, with their mouths, and you don't teach them to love and fear God through the gospel, you have failed, fathers. You have obedient people who will bust hell wide open. You have moral robots. You don't have Christians. If you don't teach them the gospel in your home, they won't get it. Chances are they won't get it. That's what he's stressing. Are there those who are raised in ungodly homes that are saved? Yes. But in Scripture, they are the exception, not the rule. That's played out from the Old to the New Testament. If you do not commit parents to raise your children in the gospel, you're starting them the wrong way. That's what I'm saying. That's what Solomon's saying. Don't forget what I've taught you. Love what I've taught you. Prize what I've taught you above everything else. Highly prize it. Be willing to give everything to it. What will be the return if you don't forsake it, if you love it, and if you prize it above all else? He gives it in the second half of his teaching. Look in 6b. She will keep you. If you don't forsake her, the gospel, wisdom, she will keep you. If you love her, she will guard you. If you prize her, she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will crown you with a beautiful crown. It's the gospel. All of our hope, all of our life, all of who we are should be given to this wisdom, the wisdom found only in the gospel. It's not found in legalism. It's not found in good deeds. It's not found in moralistic teaching. It's found only in Christ. This is what the Hebrew father was to give their children. So when you read Deuteronomy 6 from now on, all you should think about is what they were training their children in was the gospel. That's what they were to be training their children in. Is the love of the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. So now I want to give a little encouragement. So you have a child that's hard you have a child who is in their heart rebellious. What hope is there? What, what hope is there? I talked to a parent this week. and said, listen, honestly, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do. My child, if, he, if, if the child loses it, will not be tamed. What, do you, what does the Bible say to that parent? The Bible says, over and over, not just in one place, but again and again, turn them to Christ. You have to continue. You have to insist upon. You have to plead with them over the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, That the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure. 
What did he do to show that he treasured this treasure? He buried it in a field and sold everything he had to buy the field. Don't forsake my teaching. Love my teaching. Prize it highly above all things. So when you have that untamed spirit in your home, I have them. My children are not perfect. What do we do with them? We prize Christ above all else. In our own hearts, in our own minds, from our own mouths, we prize Christ above everything else. And we turn their eyes and their hearts towards Him. I want to see in my own life and in the lives of the moms and dads in this place that we begin to plead with our children to trust in the Lord, to prize Him. That we move away from moralism and into gospel-centered, grace-centered homes. Now, there is a biblical example of this. And I, I am iffy about whether I should share it, but I'm going to. I plan to, so I'm going to. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I think this week as I was studying, and what example in the Bible do we have that if you train up a child in the way they should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it? And I'm talking about an example that took some time to get there. I mean, the Apostle Paul was Saul, and he had been trained in the ways of the Jewish faith. I believe his home to be a Hebrew home. His teaching and training he gained from Gamaliel to be based basically on Deuteronomy 6. Everything he had gained. But yet, when he, when he came of age, he went to the persecution of the church. He thought he was working for God, but he was working against God. He didn't realize it at the time. God revealed that to him through the appearance of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4 don't despise what I've taught you. Love what I've taught you. Prize what I've taught you. Came true in Paul's life, late in life. After he left his father's home. Look in Philippians chapter 3. And he says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, speaking of Christ, and Christians, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now he's talking about the difference between these Pharisees and these Judaizers and himself. They were both raised in homes that basically were based on Deuteronomy 6. They were probably well versed in the Proverbs. They knew the practical implications of the teaching. But one set, the Judaizers, did not embrace it with their hearts and did not come to Christ. And here Paul is, post-Christ, having embraced not just the ethical teachings, but had loved God with all his heart. Look what he says. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the only son born in the promised land on the other side of the Jordan, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, 
as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I don't think he's overspeaking. I think he was blameless in keeping the law as they attained blamelessness. In other words, when he failed, he made repentance. When he disobeyed God, he came back in repentance. He was blameless before the Lord. But whatever, look at what he says, this is post-Christ. But whatever gain I had, I now count it loss for what? The sake of Christ. I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing, getting wisdom and getting insight for Paul became getting Christ. He had been trained in a Hebrew way. He had grown up in a Deuteronomy 6 home. He had been trained by the greatest teacher in the people of Israel's history at that time. And yet he said, I count all of that loss. Why? Because I've begun to treasure Christ. I've applied these teachings now to the deepest core of what they are. I love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. How do I know that? Because I have gained Christ and be found in Him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I'm not any longer just doing things, but I'm doing them from my heart. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. He strains, he said. I strain towards Christ. I push in towards Christ. How does he end the letter? He ends the letter saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now I've been revived with my concern for you. And you for me, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned in whatever situation I am to, con- to be content. I know now how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He treasures Christ and Christ guards him against all else. And finally, he says... Not that I seek the gift that you have for me, but the fruit of the increase to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every one of your needs with His riches, according to Jesus Christ. Paul, the great Jewish lawkeeper, treasured Christ and counted everything else lost because the gospel guarded him. The reality of Proverbs 4 became a reality for Paul. He didn't forsake the teaching. He loved it with all of his heart. He prized it above his own life. In the end, the Apostle Paul gives a final witness to the truth we've been talking about in Proverbs 4. As he ends the letter to his disciple, Timothy, he says, in verse 6 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy, I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is a crown that has been laid up for me, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I just want to tell you, if you want that crown, you have it only because you are in Christ. Paul lived out Proverbs 4 to the end. He did not forsake the teaching of the Old Covenant. He loved it and he prized it above everything else in his life because it was contained in Christ. He found that it was contained in Christ, not in his legalism, not in his keeping, but in Christ. And what did he receive? Wisdom crowned him at the end of his life. Wisdom gave him the garland of high prize above all else. This can be you, he says. Not just me. It's not just my crown. It's your crown, Grace Fellowship. It's your crown. Prize Christ above everything else. Keep the wisdom that He has entrusted to you through His Word. Don't forsake it. Love it and prize it. Treasure it above all else. At the end of your life, you will not hear from God, what have you done for me lately? You will hear from Him, well done, my good and faithful servant. And He will hand to you a crown of great glory. It comes from the pursuit of Christ in His Word, in His law. So is that our heart or not? We call ourselves children of the King. Are we obeying Him? Are we following Him? Are we believing in Him? Are we trusting in Him? And are we teaching our children the same? Listen, there is no hope in anything else. The only hope you or I have is in the Gospel. It is in Christ. Now to parents who, like me, have failed, you've already failed. I mean, listen, if your children are more than a couple days old, you've failed as a parent. Right, Bruce? Try to raise four at the same time, the same age. You've failed, don't you? (laughs) It's hard. What's our only hope, parent? The gospel. At the end of the day, we look our children in the eyes and say, hey, I have failed. 